The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I would invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 30 today. About 2010, 2011, I went on a trip with Grace Anna's brother, who's also named Grant, and, and we went down to Orlando for a Ligonier conference. And at this Ligonier conference, Sproul was speaking, as always, Piper was speaking, and we sat up in the balcony, and I'll never forget, R.C. Sproul gave a message on the defense of the faith. And he, he, at this point, he was on oxygen. He had an oxygen tank. He was literally sitting on a stool right behind a podium, drinking Diet Coke. And he gave one of the most cogent and compelling arguments I've ever heard for the existence of God. It just absolutely blew me away. Because if you can establish with certainty that God exists, that he has given us a book which he has confirmed through miracles, then the rest is just exegesis, as Sproul would say. And that day really God used to awaken in my heart uh, a desire to understand the defense of the Christian faith, a desire to understand how to proclaim the truth of Christianity in this hostile world that we live in. And one of the proof texts, jot this verse down, is 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for the reason for the hope that is in you. That word defense, the Greek word is apologia. And it's where our English word apology comes from, but that's not what the, the Greek word means. The Greek word actually means to give a reason, to marshal up a defense for what you believe. And so this is a command that's given to all Christians. We all must be prepared in this secular world to make a defense for the truth claims of Christianity. But how many Christians are able to do that, you think? in an American Christianity, which is a mile wide but only an inch deep. How many are prepared to defend the Christian faith? But that's exactly what Jesus is doing here at the end of John chapter 10. Jesus is making a defense, an argument for the fact that he is indeed the Son of God. He is given, giving an apologetic for Christianity. And important for the task of apologetics, and and you need to understand this very clearly, is if you are to engage in apologetics, you must understand the Christian worldview. You must understand the Christian worldview. Now, every single person has a worldview. Everybody has a worldview. A worldview, think of the worldview as glasses. 
and the glasses are the lenses by which you see everything that you encounter in the world. The, the world your worldview are your firmly held presuppositions by which you interpret what you encounter. By, uh, uh, when your kid asks you at night, what happens when we die? How you answer that question is your worldview. When somebody asks you, who are you going to vote for in this upcoming election? How you answer is based on your worldview. So it's very important that we have a worldview that is conformed to the truth. Now let me give you what a, a, the, a worldview consists of. A worldview consists of, every worldview consists of these things. One, a theology a theology. Every worldview has a theology. Every worldview has to answer the question, is there a God? And if there is, who is he? And how do we know him? Every worldview has a metaphysic. Metaphysics just means, how did we get here? Uh, How did the earth come into being? What sustains everything? How, How are we here? That's what metaphysics answers. Every worldview has an epistemology. An epistemology is about thinking. How do you know the truth? How do you know knowledge? How can you verify truth claims? That's your epistemology. Every worldview has an anthropology, and anthropology answers the question, who is man? What are we? Are we image bearers created by God, or are we descendants of apes? Every worldview has an anthropology. Every worldview has an ethic. What is right? What is wrong? And how do you determine morality? And then every worldview has a telos. Telos just means the end. It's the Latin word that means the end. What's the purpose of everything? What's the end game of everything? How will things end? And every worldview has a telos. Now, the Christian understands all of those things in light of the fact that there is a God who is there and the fact that he has given us a book. That's how the Christian understands their worldview. But what has happened right now in our culture and our society is people have thrown out the map maker and they've thrown out the map. So people have no idea how to determine anything absolutely. They're just wandering around Barnes and Noble looking for a book in the self-help section to help figure out how to navigate. They're just putting their finger up in the air. What do I feel like? And that's why we're having this existential crisis in our country. When I was in the Marine Corps, there was an event at the officer school in Quantico. It was one of the final events. It was graded. It was eight, 10 hour event, and you would go out and you would find 10 boxes that were hidden in the Quantico woods, and they would just give you the grid coordinates in a room, in a classroom. You would jot down the grid coordinates, and then you'd plot them on your map, and then you'd go off into the woods and try to find those uh, boxes. And I remember this is final land nav, fourth grade. I was walking, walking in the woods. I came to a box, and there sitting on one of the logs next to a box was, was a guy in my platoon named Lieutenant, Lieutenant Kyle Rarig. Maybe I shouldn't have said his name. But he went on to be a pilot, so I, I, I'm curious how that worked out for him. But he had lost his map. 
on final land nav. He had lost his map. And so I came up to him and I said, okay, this is where we're at. This is the nearest road. You're gonna have to go this way, due, due west to get out to the road, then go down the road to the, to the CP and that's where you can get another map. I did, you know, show him where to go. And so that's where, that's, you know, what he did. But that's where our culture is today. Our culture is trying to navigate all of life decisions, but they have no idea where they are, and they have no idea where they are going. But one of the wonderful things about Christianity is that God has given us an entire worldview, an entire worldview. And the Christian worldview, one of the the wonderful things about it is, is that it's the same throughout history. Our worldview is the same as Fanny Crosby's and Francis Schaeffer's. We go all the way back. Our worldview is consistent because it's all given to us through the word of God. And, and, and the, the, the really remarkable thing that you see at the end of this passage in, in John chapter 10 is Jesus fleshing out this worldview. So pay attention. This is, this is really important that we see and understand the Christian worldview through the words of Jesus and through this encounter with Jesus. So the first thing that I want you to see about the Christian worldview that Jesus explains is that Jesus' worldview centers on the triune God. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Six words that you could contemplate forever. I said last week, this is a nursing home verse. While others are playing bingo, you can be thinking about John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. Just, just think about that. Roll that over in your mind. I, first person, singular. Father, first person, singular. Masculine, singular. The verb, are, plural verb. But then look, last, singular pronoun, one. I and the Father are one. You have plurality and singularity. You have personality and oneness. What is Jesus describing here? He's describing the Trinity. The Father is God. The Son is God. He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but the Holy Spirit is God. There is one God, one divine essence, but three persons. Now here's the implication of the doctrine of the Trinity. Why is the Trinity so important for Christianity, so important to understand reality? It's because from the very beginning, our God is a personal God. Our God is a personal God because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have always been in relationship with one another. And that explains why God created us to know him. God is a personal being. He created us to have fellowship with him, to know him, to walk with him. That's why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 9.23. He says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. God says, you delight in the fact that you boast in the fact that you know the living God, 
That's what we are to boast in. God desires a relationship with us, and that's what Jesus came to do is to restore relationship. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it's very important that we understand that because God is Trinity, three in one, that God is a personal being and that God wants to know you. Let me ask you a question. Do you know God? Or are you living estranged from the living God? You need to come to the end of yourself and answer that question. Do you know God? Or are you walking in rebellion against him? There is a God who is there. And that's where the Christian worldview begins. There is a personal God who created you and me. And he created us to know him. Well, for this statement, look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They begin to execute capital punishment against them, but something, by the way, that they weren't allowed to do by the Romans. So they are so angry. They, they are willing to risk getting in trouble with the Roman authorities to go and pick up stones. Apparently, there were stones lying around the temple that they went and gathered quickly. Uh, the word for pick up, I thought this was interesting, is the Greek word bastazo. And that same word John uses in John 19 to describe Jesus picking up his cross. So the Jews pick up stones. Jesus picks up his cross. Well, that's the first pillar of the Christian worldview is understanding the triune God, that Jesus' worldview centers on the triune God. Second, Jesus' worldview asserts divine revelation. This is so important for you to understand divine revelation. What do I mean by the word revelation? I mean that God reveals himself. That's what revelation means. For you to know God, God has to reveal himself to you because God is invisible. God is a spirit. God is outside time and space. God has to come and reveal his character to us for us to know him. You can't just go out into the desert and have some type of trans transcendental meditation and go up to God. God has to reveal himself. Look at verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works. Now here's the important prepositional phrase. What, what follows that? From the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Jesus is saying, look, I have revealed to you things, and, and, and where are these things from? From the Father. These things are from God. By works, he's talking about miracles, most likely, but also his perfect life, also his teaching. He's talking about, you think about what, what has John talked about throughout the gospel. He's talking about all the miracles that Jesus has done, turning water into wine, uh, healing a nobleman's son at a distance, uh, feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes, walking across the, the, the stormy sea, He's healed a man who was lame for 38 years. He's healed a man who was born blind. He's done incredible works. And Jesus says that these works do what? They're from the Father, and they reveal to you who God is. 
That's one of the purposes of, of a miracle is that it reveals who God is. So Jesus asked the question, why are you bringing these charges against me? What have I done? Where's the false note? Where's the evil deed? Now here's the big takeaway for the Christian worldview. To truly know who God is, you must understand that God must reveal himself to us. And that's one of the important reasons why Jesus came into the world. Jesus came into the world so that we might know God. At the end of John chapter 1, Jesus says that you will see the Son of Man and angels coming and ascending and descending upon him. He describes himself as Jacob's ladder at the end of John chapter 1. That's what Jesus is. He is God coming down to this earth. He is Jacob's ladder. He is the revelation of who God is. He is revealing himself so that we can know God. This is what Jesus says in John 5, 36. He says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus has come to reveal to us God. Now here's the question for you. I think this is, this is an important question. How do we know who the real Jesus is? How do you know who the real Jesus is? This is an important question. If Jesus has come and he's revealed the Father to us, how do we get to the real Jesus? There was a missionary uh, to Africa named Albert Schweitzer at the beginning of the 20th century. He said that the Jesus of history is not the same as the Jesus of the Bible. Have you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? The Jesus Seminar sat down with the Bible and they, they literally took the Gospels and they started underlining words and events in the Gospels. And they said, we think Jesus did this. We think Jesus uh, possibly did this. We know that Jesus didn't do this. And they basically did what Thomas Jefferson did. And they just started editing the Word of God. Andy Stanley is saying right now that we go to what Jesus said, but not to the Jesus of the Bible. Have you heard this? Here's the important thing. When, before Jesus left, he said, this is, this is in the Upper Room dis Discourse, he said, the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into all truth. You remember that? He was talking about the apostles. He was saying the Holy Spirit will come and he will allow you, the apostles, to recall all the things that have happened. And therefore, when you write the Gospels and the New Testament, you will record the events truly as they were. So here's my point. How, have any of you actually seen Jesus do a miracle? No. I mean, he's been in heaven for 2,000 years. So how do you know that he did do a miracle and revealed God in this way? You have to go to the scriptures. You can't do an end around this book. The historical Jesus is the same as the biblical Jesus. That's what I'm saying. And as soon as you divorce those, you are in big trouble. You are in big trouble. Because it's the biblical Jesus, one and the same with the historical Jesus who reveals God to us. That leads to the third point. Third part of the worldview is that Jesus' worldview demands an incarnation. 
Jesus' worldview demands an incarnation. Incarnation is a fancy word that means put on flesh. It comes from the Latin incarnatio, which means to become flesh. We talk about the incarnation as in God putting on our humanity. That's, when we, that's what we mean when we say incarnation. Look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, they're only half right in that statement, because did, did a man make himself God in the incarnation? No, God made himself man in the incarnation. He just claimed to be God. So, slightly off here, blasphemy word blasphemia, it means to slander, disrespect, denigrate, shame God. That's what blasphemy means. I saw a couple weeks ago a a woman in front of the, the White House was holding up a sign, and the sign said, Mary could have saved us a lot of problems if she would have aborted her child. That's blasphemy. Uh, I was in the gym a few months ago, and I was, I was on the squat rack, and there were some young guys behind me on the, the, the bench press. And every time they, they finished a set, they would throw the weights on the ground, and they would yell out Jesus Christ's name. Um, and this happened three or four times, and finally I just walked over there, and I said, look, guys, two things. Uh, one, stop throwing your weights on the ground when you finish your set. And two, stop blaspheming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think anybody had ever told them that before. Nobody had ever told them that the name of God is to be revered as, as holy. And so these, these Jews are saying, look, you're blaspheming God because you're, you're claiming to be God. Um, you're guilty of blasphemy, blasphemy, that's why we're so angry. But they failed to understand. This, this was their big mistake in their worldview. They failed to understand the necessity of the incarnation. If they would have gone and studied their Old Testaments, they would have known that a God-man is mandated. They would have known this. This is what the prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is Jesus' point in, in Matthew 22. He's quizzing, he's quizzing the Jews in Matthew 22. And he says, why does David say, in Psalm 110, my Lord said to my Lord. Why does he call the future Messiah Lord in Psalm 110 if the future Messiah is one of David's descendants? Why? And they had no answer, remember? They just, they just they, we don't get it. We walked away. He calls him Lord because there is a future God-man. There is a man who is also God. Remember Joshua when he walked across the Jordan towards Jericho, 
he saw a figure of of the pre-incarnate Christ, what we call a Christophany. It was the appearance of the Son of God, and he appeared to Joshua as a man. And he said to Joshua, Joshua says, whose side are you on? He said, I'm not on either side. Take off your sandals from where you stand is holy ground. You see, if they would have studied their Old Testaments, they would have seen that a God-man is coming. And the reason why God had to come is because there is no other way for us to get to heaven if God does not come. Because sinners cannot find their way to the corridors of heaven. You can work, work, work all the days of your life, and you will never work your way into heaven. Never. By works of the law, no one will be justified because we are all sinners. And so for us to go to heaven, God had to come down to bring us up to where he is. Thus the latter, the statement that Jesus makes. There has to be an incarnation. If Jesus did not become a man, then he has not become one of us and he cannot bring us to heaven. He had to come all the way down. That's why Paul says, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at, your prop, at the proper time. For us to go to heaven, there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when you're talking to an unbeliever, talking to anyone for that matter, ask them, what's your road to heaven? What's your stairway to heaven? And if their answer is anything, well, I'm doing this. I'm building this. I'm trying to be a good person. That ladder is a pie in the sky. It's a road to nowhere. It's a tower of Babel. It will fall and it will crumble. Doesn't matter how moral they are. Doesn't matter if their ladder ladder gets higher than somebody else's ladder. You have to have a ladder that comes all the way down from heaven. And that's why Christianity is so unique. Every other religion is man trying to build his way up. Christianity is God coming down. It's absolutely remarkable. And this is what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees. He says, look, I know you're accusing me of blasphemy, but you don't understand the need for an incarnation that God has come down. So first, Jesus' worldview centers on the triune God. Second, Jesus' worldview asserts divine revelation. Third, Jesus' worldview demands an incarnation. Fourth, Jesus' worldview declares the authority of Scripture. This is so important, especially for this day and age, for any age, that you know and understand the authority of the Word of God. Look at this argument that Jesus makes in verses 34 to 36. So, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? He refers to their law because he knows there's a point of continuity here. The Jews also believed in the authority of the word of God. So he's pointing to a place of continuity. And he quotes Psalm 82, 6, which says, I said, you are gods. 
Verse 35, Jesus says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? Now in Psalm 82, 6, Psalm 82, 6 says, I said, you are God's son of the most high, all of you. And it uses, it's translated in your Bibles, little g, gods, not, not big g. And it refers most likely, this is what the Jews thought, to, to judges, those that judged the people, those who were princes who executed God's divine judgment to the people of Israel. And so because they acted on God's behalf, God inspired, this is again God's inspired word, that they be, that they're in the image of God, they're like little g gods. And Jesus is simply pointing out here that the Jews are being inconsistent in their application of the word of God because they have already referred to some in their culture as gods, yet he is the son of God. He's saying if you refer to your judges as gods because they act on, a, on account of God, how can you oppose the one who is actually consecrated? Hagiazo means set apart. How can, you, how can you actually take the capital punishment the one who is the consecrated son of God? Here's the important part about Jesus' argument. Notice that phrase, Scripture cannot be broken. That is such an important phrase, and you need to etch this in marble in your mind, in your worldview. Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. That's what Jesus believed. I read a lot of liberal scholars who believe that Scripture can be broken. They all said, Jesus, well, if you actually look at the words of Jesus, Jesus believed that the Old Testament is the Word of God, that it cannot be broken. That word broken, it's a common word. We had to conjugate it in, in just Greek intro to Greek, it's luo, and it means to loose or to, to break, to, to unbound, to divide. Jesus' point is that Scripture stands as one entity, as one unit. That's why it's not called, how many books are there in the Bible? 66, 39 in your Old Testament, 27 in your New Testament. But we call it the Word of God not the words of God. The reason why we call Scripture the word, singular of God, is because it's one. It's one unit. You, you can't take Paul and pit him against James. There, there is a way to reconcile them. The, there's a constant truth. It's called the Analogia Scriptura that runs through all of Scripture. Scripture never contradicts itself. There's not one false note. It cannot be broken in the words of Christ. That's because Scripture, even though it was written by man, it was written by, man who were, by men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out, theopneustos. It's, it's God's breath. 
And he says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Jesus said about Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, listen, until heaven and earth pass away, not in iota, not a dot, the little smallest Hebrew script will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Isaiah says in Isaiah 48, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Paul says in Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Scripture cannot be broken. And what happened, the, the worldview that we are opposed against is the worldview of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment says that there is no God, therefore there is no revelation from God. And so in the 1800s, the 19th century, people in, in German universities begin to look at the Bible and they took that Enlightenment worldview and they said this is merely a book of men, men who wrote, and it was written by men who were fallible, and therefore there are errors in the Bible. That's called theological liberalism, and they, they gutted all that is supernatural from the Bible, and that wrecked Europe in the 1800s. It, it, it caused the churches to go dark, and it came to America in the 20th century, and every denomination, every church that took that Enlightenment worldview and said, look, there's, there's parts of Scripture that, that are uninspired, that have errors. There's parts of it that are the Word of God, we think. Every denomination that took that stance basically has turned out the lights. Christ has taken their lampstand. Because once, once you take away part of Scripture— you take away all of it, all of it. Uh, Spurgeon, in the last years of his life, this is what killed him. In the Baptist Union in Britain, this ideology just invaded the churches. And people started to deny the full inspiration and authority of the Bible. And listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, the first step astray is a want or lack of adequate faith in the divine inspiration of the sacred scriptures. All the while a man bows to the authority of God's word, he will not entertain any sentiment contrary to its teaching. To the law and to the testimony is his appeal concerning every doctrine. He esteems that holy book concerning all things to be right, and therefore he hates every false way. But let a man question or entertain low views of the inspiration and authority of the Bible, and he is without chart to guide him and without anchor to hold him. So in order for us to navigate our way with a, with a biblical worldview, we have to hold to the full inspiration and authority of the word of God. And Jesus, our Lord and Savior, held to this. Scripture cannot be broken. Satan Young people, listen to me. If you're still alive in 70, 80 years, this will be the lie that this is not God's word and you cannot trust it. 
and that it's broken in half. And if you cave on that point, you're done. You really are. So I can't emphasize this enough. Jesus emphasized this. We must emphasize this. In a world that says that there is no absolute truth, God has revealed himself and he has given us his holy scriptures, which he has preserved through time. And they speak timelessly and they reveal to us everything we need to know about life, God, godliness, the future, everything. Praise be to God. So that's four. Fifth, Jesus' worldview states the importance of miracle. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. By works, again, he's talking about what we would call today a supernatural miracle. Look at verse 38. He says, but if I do them, if I do miracles, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. So look at the miracles, see that I'm doing them. And then he says that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. One of the purposes of miracles throughout history is that God uses miracles to confirm and affirm the word of God. The prophets were affirmed by miracles. That's why Moses did so many miracles. Moses was giving new revelation. The prophets, like Elijah and Elisha, they do miracles because they're giving giving new revelation. Jesus and the apostles do miracles because the miracles confirm that they are giving revelation. Now, I was talking to my kids this morning on the way in. Why don't we see many miracles today? Because there's no new revelation to confirm. It's all been given. But Jesus' Jesus's point is, I do the miracles so that you may know indeed that I am sent from the Father, that the Father is in me and I am in him. Now today, is God working? He is. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's called providence. God is governing a bazillion things at once. And, and he does it all in accordance with human freedom. It's absolutely remarkable to think about. We're f- free creatures, yet everything that happens, happens according to the foreknowledge and preordination of God Almighty. That's, that's providence. So God is working. But what is a miracle then? A, a miracle is a work of God that is unexplainable except for the divine finger of God working in an unusual way. That's what a miracle is. A miracle is not you showing up to the supermarket three days in a row and getting the same parking spot. A miracle is not your kid getting into NC State, though that might be a feat. Uh, uh, A miracle is not you being on a vacation in France and running into a family member at the Eiffel Tower, although that's improbable. All of those things you can explain through providence, that God put it on both of your hearts to have a vacation and just so happen to be at the same time. Yes, God's working in that, but that's providence. A A miracle is when the only explanation is the divine hand of God 
interjecting itself in history. Be like if you were in, in Washington, D.C., and you were at Ford Theater, and you saw Lincoln get shot, and you went to the house, and you saw that he was dead, and you went to the funeral, and you saw the train go by that had his casket, and then a week later, you saw Lincoln in Congress. Then you would say, there has to be a miracle. And this is an important thing for us as Christians to understand because God, there is a God who is over time and space. We sometimes forget that because we don't live in the time of miracles where miracles are commonplace. But God can and does in history work miracles. There was a Scottish philosopher named David Hume. And David Hume basically said, uh, God can't work a miracle because we don't see miracles. He basically had a worldview that said that, that everything that is, is in the box, and that there's nothing outside the box. And the only way to explain anything that happens in the box is by something else in the box acting upon it. In other words, if you say there's a miracle, there's another explanation for it. If you say Jesus walked on water, well, there's probably a sandbar underneath. There's some sort of explanation inside the box for the miracle. And, and most of our culture and society has followed the thinking of David Hume. There are no miracles, but there are. Because God is not confined in the box. God can interject himself in space and time, and he does, and he did. And this is Jesus' point to the Jews. Now, did the Jews have a worldview that affirmed miracles? They did. All the Old Testament, they knew that God does miracles. So here's Jesus' point, is then look at the miracles. And then what do the miracles say about what I'm saying? The miracles testify to the fact that I am from the Father. Because only God has the power to interject himself in the box. That's what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees and Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So they didn't believe him. Even though they had seen the miracles, they had seen this man who was born blind, they had interviewed him, all those things. They seek to arrest him. So first, we saw Jesus' worldview centers on the triune God. Second, Jesus' worldview asserts divine revelation Third, Jesus' worldview demands an incarnation. Fourth, Jesus' worldview declares the authority of Scripture. Fifth, Jesus' worldview states the importance of miracle. And then sixth and finally, Jesus' worldview commands the necessity of faith. Look at verse 40. So, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. So he goes back all the way to the place where John had baptized him at the beginning of his ministry. This would have been about 40 miles southeast from Jerusalem. He goes to this place called Perea. It's basically wilderness. Think brown everywhere. He's in the wilderness. He's across the Jordan. He's on the, the eastern side, right above the Dead Sea where the Jordan River flows in the Dead Sea. It's, it's an arid wilderness land. And he goes there because people are seeking to destroy him. 
in Jerusalem. And then verse 41, it says, many came to him and they said, John did no sign. In other words, John did no miracles, but they still came to him. And they said, but everything that John said about this man was true. So John, you remember, looked at Christ and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said, this man is the Messiah. And they said, everything that John said about him is true. He's done the signs of the Messiah. He's done the miracles. And then verse 42, and many believed in him there. Many believed in him there. This is, this is such an important way to, to end this morning because it's, it's vital to know and understand that the Christian worldview involves faith in the Son of God. It demands and commands faith in the Son of God. And this last element is really where the Christian worldview begins. All the other things that we've talked about, you can believe those things and still not be a Christian. You can believe all those things and still not be a Christian. In fact, the demons believe those things. Did you know that? The demons have an orthodox worldview. But do they believe in the only Son of God? No. They don't trust him as Lord and Savior. So this last part is so important that we trust Christ as the mediator. And think about these people. These people that are believing in Jesus they are going out to the wilderness to find Christ. Do you think that these people are the upper echelon of society? Or do you think these people are the poor and the down and out? These people, these people are, aren't, the, aren't the big wigs. Because people are on the hunt for Jesus. The authorities want Jesus dead. Yet these people are willing to risk everything. Go out 40 miles into the wilderness to see Christ, and there they believe in him. I've got news for you. In this culture that we're in, you think it's acceptable to believe in the only Son of God and to be his follower? Do you think that's looked on highly at these Fortune 500 companies? No, no. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, let us go to him outside the camp and take on his reproach. If we're going to be Christians, we are going to be Christians in the wilderness. And we are to go to him in faith, believing and trusting in him. Do you believe, do you have faith in the Son of God? There are no grandkids in the kingdom of God. There's only sons and daughters. You can't get there on your parents' faith. It has to be your faith. Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you trust him? And if you do, what happens is when you trust Christ, you are given the mind of Christ, Paul says. So you begin to think God's thoughts after him. And the Holy Spirit leads you into all truth through this book. And that's why the Christian worldview is uniform throughout the centuries. We all believe, you can go back to Augustine, to Monica, all those people in the, in the early centuries. And, and everything that Jesus just talked about right here, they all held to it. They all believe it. Why? Because God begins to change you through the inside out, through faith. So that's where you have to begin. There's no place more important. I want to implore you to trust Christ, to go to him in the wilderness, believe in him. Nothing is more important. Heavenly Father, Lord, we
thank you for how you articulated the Christian worldview, your worldview, that there is a God in heaven, a personal God who desires to know us, that you have revealed yourself, that you came, that you revealed God to us through the mighty works that you did, that you have given us a book that cannot be broken, that it is truth, truth. It is the basic level of truth. It is the ground of truth, and it is a guide to us for everything that we do in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown us that you have confirmed this truth through the miracles that you have done, that you are a God who, at your whim, can interject yourself in history, in time and space, in mighty acts. We also thank you, Lord, that you have led us to faith in the only Son of God. We pray, Lord, for those who do not know you, Lord, that you would open up their minds, their hearts, to submit to the Lordship of Christ, that they would stop striving, stop trying to build, build their own ladders to heaven, but they would go to the ladder that has already come down so that, we, that they can go up to be where you are. We love you, Lord. We trust you. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.